and welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today, I think we can actually learn something. I don't know if we learn something on most of my shows. I try, but I think today we actually will get to the bottom of some things and learn some things. We have with us none other than Akela Lacey. How are you today? I'm great. How are you, Bakari? Can I start with talking about how dope your frames are? Those Thank are pretty you. cool. <laughs> yeah. My the blue light glasses. <laughs> the world can't see them, but yeah, they're they're pretty dope. So our show is unique because we we start our show by having each one of our guests walk us through the arc of their careers. And you've been a part of some of the country's leading newsrooms from political to the work you do now at The Intercept. Can you walk us through the arc of your career since finishing at William & Mary? Shout out to William & Mary. Forget what their mascot is, but <laughs> go, it's now go, go them. Uh, talk about your beat now for The Intercept covering Washington criminal justice as well as Governor De Sanctimonious. Sure. Yeah. So I, um, I moved to DC, you know, after I graduated from college, my first job was at a place called the Pulitzer Center, which gives grants to uh, reporters to do international reporting um, and bring those stories back to US outlets. And I went from there to Politico, where I had a very, uh, a crash course in everything from producing playbook to writing breaking news. This was like during the beginning of the Trump administration. Um, and then I, I went to The Intercept and I've been there for about five years. Um, I was in DC. I'm now based in New York, but I do a mixture of congressional reporting, national reporting on the intersection of criminal justice and politics. And the last few years I've been uh, more focused on prosecutors, um, the the reform prosecutor movement, and pushback to that movement. And uh, yeah, we have a pretty small team at the Intercept, so <laughs> I cover a lot of different things. And have I was just like, you got about you, you sounds like you in eight different sections of the newsroom over there. Yeah, we we have a a pretty adept team. So I I that just to say that you know this DeSantis story um fell into some of those buckets that I that I report in but I was glad to have the opportunity to do a little bit more digging on uh his Supreme Court appointments so look one of the things you talked about which is of great interest to me is the beat of of covering prosecutors particularly these progressive prosecutors there was a, a period of time right before and slightly after George Floyd where this space where the left spent a lot of time and attention. But since then, we've seen um, DAs recalled and, and crime spikes, whether or not they're perceived or real, forcing the pendulum to swing back to more traditional, quote, law and order DAs. Can you talk a bit about the world of reform-oriented DAs and what your reporting has uncovered about how they've been perceived across the country? Sure. So, you know, we actually just did another story on this yesterday. Um, I've been writing a lot about uh, the spike in what is called preemption bills, which is not a sexy term, but it's basically bills that st seek to strip or limit the power of prosecutors. We've seen these bills, I think there's been close to 40 across 17 states since 2017, if I'm not mistaken. And these started popping up and ballooning in number really after the reform prosecutor movement took off and after reform-minded prosecutors started winning more and more elections. I think probably the most high-profile example of, um, I guess, successful pushback to one of these prosecutors would be the recall of Chesa Boudin in San Francisco. But there's been, you know, there's been recall efforts or efforts to impeach or otherwise limit the authority of prosecutors in Pennsylvania. We saw, you know, Kim Gardner in Missouri resigned 
uh, earlier this year after the legislature had uh, passed a bill that would have taken away the power of her constituents to elect their own prosecutor um, in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, you know, there was a lot of reporting on the legislature creating this new Capitol police complex that would have had a separate mm -hmm. police force just for the blackest city in, in Mississippi, Jackson would have taken away the, their power to elect their own prosecutor as well. So, uh, you know, that's just a slice of some of the the pushback that we've been seeing to them. I think to your question about their perception, um, you know, it's been there. We I've noticed, at least in my coverage of the, over the last couple of years, there is a tendency for um, reform prosecutors to be subject to a higher level of scrutiny than their predecessors on a lot of issues, and particularly linked to when there is a heinous or a high-profile crime. Um, you know, the, they're often the ones who are are taking taking fire over that. This was definitely the case with Chesa. This happens. You know, this is happening right now in Oakland. I don't know if you saw. Uh, we did a story a couple of weeks ago. There's. Uh, a new DA in Alameda County, um, which includes Oakland and parts of the East Bay, where she's been in office for seven months and a recall committee officially launched earlier this year. There's been a lot of local reporting bashing her for crime in Oakland. Um, and then the end of- How? How? She's been there seven months. I mean, I, you know, the, the, yeah. the criticisms that I see uh, of some DAs, particularly like the one in Austin, mm -hmm. seem to be more- I don't want to say valid. I don't want to give them like a lot of win, but they seem to be, they seem to have more elements of, hmm, pause, maybe these decisions, we need to have some oversight or at least look into how these decisions were made. So I think Austin is a little bit different story about the way that the right is attacking. But when you have someone who's been there four or five months, I mean, what, what do they do? And I guess my follow-up question is, how do you contrast what's happening in Alameda County versus you know, my good friend Andre Dickens kind of spiking the football with the 70% decrease in crime and what uh, everybody's going to get a chance to know her. But Fani uh, Willis is doing in Fulton County. How do you contrast those those kind of two two different segments of the, of the population? Uh, you mean just in terms of um, the opposite, like the different approach? Correct. Yeah. yeah. So I think, you know, some of the some of the prosecutors that we've covered have been a little bit more careful, I think, particularly because of the sort of uh, swift and and really vitriolic backlash that a lot of them have come under. And so I think some prosecutors are saying, you know, OK, we don't necessarily believe in, you know, the, the old school, pu really punitive, tough on crime stuff that, you know, evidence has shown does not necessarily work in a lot of cases, but we're not going to tout ourselves as a reformer, somebody who's going out to end cash bail, all these things, because that often puts a target on your back. And so I'm not super familiar exactly with um, Andre Dickens' specific policies, but I know at least with Bonnie Willis, I mean, you know, she's she's in a position that's a little bit more complex because of the potential Trump indictment, but she's also in a position where even she's not really a reformer, but the we, the Georgia law we were covering yesterday would give, you know, prosecute or give this politically appointed commission the power to remove her um, for a really long, vague list of reasons that could include, you know, um, you know, issuing a blanket policy not to prosecute like low level pot offenses or any anything. And so she's in a position that's a little bit different because I think, you know, when we reported this, there's more antagonism towards her because of the Trump stuff and not necessarily the reform stuff. So it can take a lot of different forms. And I think that's sort of the bottom line, which is that no matter 
if a, it, n these attacks are not necessarily only against reform prosecutors, there's we're starting to see them against prosecutors who just simply don't agree with the, the state government. This was the case where DeSantis suspended Andrew Warren in Florida because he refused to, you know, prosecute prosecute criminal charges for people who sought abortions. Um, and he's not, you know, he's now become sort of a, a face of this movement, even though that was not considered, that's not considered a reform issue, right? You know, it's a totally yeah, different yeah. topic. Yeah. yeah. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah. Let, let's follow up on DeSantis. I want to dig a little deep yeah. into the reporting you've done on, on Governor DeSantis and the Florida Supreme Court. For our listeners who may not follow state judicial politics that closely, can you first talk about the important role of state Supreme Courts in the conservative culture wars and how Governor DeSantis is rewriting the playbook for conservative governors in this space? Right. So the, the state Supreme Court in Florida, like in many other states, is sort of the last stop for um, appeals and, and judicial um, proceedings in the state. And so, you know, when an appeal goes through, if it's appealed again, it can be appealed up to, to the state Supreme Court. They're, you know, the final law. Uh, the, the history of the state Supreme Court in Florida is actually really interesting because um, well, interesting for someone like me for who this stuff is interesting, but they had all these major corruption scandals in the late in the seventies and eighties that led to uh, the impeachment and resignation of several justices and really changed the the court into a body that was very aware of its of the, its public perception and uh, actively sort of trying to distance itself from this image of corruption and partisanship. So that was the backdrop um, before DeSantis was elected governor. And after DeSantis was elected governor, we started seeing way more sort of explicitly ideological appointments of, um, you know, the current chief justice was a political operative who was Betsy DeVos's um, legal counsel during the Trump administration. Um, had like a sort of an un um, an unusual path to the bench when you look at sort of the career paths of some of the other justices. Uh, every DeSantis has now appointed five out of the seven members on the Supreme Court, all of whom are members of the Federalist Society. Um, you know, he worked. The Washington Post and and others have reported on this, but the Post reported some additional details last month that uh, he had a secret panel basically led by the conservative judicial activist Leonard Leo um, that would vet his Supreme Court nominees before um, they were appointed. And so he's basically moved completely away from any sort of um, semblance of trying to, to appear 
uh, independent, um, you know, that characterized the court after those corruption scandals in the 70s and towards really a, a really explicit ideological project um, that seeks to sort of have everybody on the court in his in his corner. Um, and we, I can talk we, about some uh, of the, Yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, we we did an episode uh, just recently and we talked about the United States Supreme Court. So our listeners are familiar with the name Leonard Leo, but who are some of the other uh, um, billionaires who are bankrolling this work? So it's actually interesting. You know, I've heard a couple of names thrown around, particularly in the uh, after the the great reporting that's been done on the billionaires, you know, influencing our, the federal Supreme Court. Um, I the only name that I know that's confirmed is Leonard Leo. I, I don't want to name anyone else that hasn't been confirmed, but there some people are like, yeah, there there has to be money here. Others are others are a little bit, at least in the sources that I've spoken to, are a little bit more um skeptical of that just because DeSantis has so much political power that there's not, there doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, a major funding source here. I think a lot of people, and this is some of the stuff that we reported, he, the way that he's changed politics in the state has made a lot of people really afraid. And I think that is a currency in itself in a lot of ways, not to say that there's no, you know, no person bankrolling this, but um, it, it seems what, to be- what, what, can Dem- what can Democrats do? What can Democrats in Florida do or across the country about what Governor DeSantis is doing to the courts? Or are they just winning an election is what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, there's no, there's there's not a lot for them to be able to do. And it's it's really chilling. I mean, and I think this is really important given that DeSantis is running for the, the uh, in the Republican presidential primary, obviously. But there is, once he has consolidated power, there's really little that people can do, particularly because if, you know, the, the Republican Party is a totally different story, but Democrats are basically have no power in the state. And people who do speak up against him are, you know, further enmeshed in, you know, his sort of political hit list. And, and so there's not, they don't have a lot of leverage really to do much. So yeah, definitely win an election, but also, you know, I think, potentially find other ways to work with Republicans who've been scorned by him and, um, yeah, and build a coalition. I like it. I like yeah. it. People don't, people don't know how to do that anymore. You get, you get drilled on Twitter because Twitter's not necessarily real life or not Twitter. Sorry. X. 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 <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. 
Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. So one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is uh, you also cover immigration policy, ICE, in the Department of Homeland Security. How do you think the Biden administration has handled the, both the substance of federal immigration policy as well as the politics of the border? Well, <laughs> you know, we've written a little bit about, uh, I mean, the administration issued several executive orders, you know, changing immigration policy, you know, moving away from Trump's immigration policy. You know, they were still separate. Biden was still separating families at the border, though. And, and I think they have stayed away from some of the uh, criticisms on this because they know that it's uh, a very uh, sore, we're well, not a sore subject, but it's an easy it's an easy topic for Republicans to criticize them over. I think, you know, one of the administrative orders that we reported on recently uh, that DHS has not been following, even though Biden has been in office for, you know, over uh, two years now, is that um, he directed ICE to basically only prioritize enforcement actions against people who did not pose a safety threat. So whether public security, national security, or, um, or sorry, border security, national security, or public safety, uh, the Biden administration said, if people don't pose any of those threats, we don't want you messing with them. And you should be, you know, diverting your resource, limited resources to more serious cases. DHS has not been doing that, um, or ICE has not been doing that, at least according to most recent data uh, from the first year of the Biden administration. So, you know, I, there's, they have a lot of other stuff on their plate. My perception from what I've covered on this is that it's not a super high priority for the administration. I think there's a lot more that they could be doing. Um, and I mean, you see, you know, I don't know if you've seen the, the stories coming out, out of New York right now, but there's, you know, migrants being housed literally on the streets, um, you know, sleeping on the street. There's people coming out to like give them food and water and stuff. It's really, you know, this, the sorts of scenes that you don't want, you, you hope, or you expect that you want to see in the U.S., but obviously that's not how, you know, not what the reality of the situation is. And I've seen some people saying, you know, why isn't the Biden administration taking more of a look at that, paying more attention to that? Frankly, it seems like they're really preoccupied with some other stuff. I mean, it's also the summer, Biden's on vacation right now. Um, so, you know, hopefully there's some more activity on that. But it's, you know, he he talked a really big game on immigration during the election. And, um, you know, as happens, once people get into office, uh, sometimes those promises aren't, aren't necessarily followed through. Whatever happened to congressional work around comprehensive immigration reform? You know, that was one of the reasons that I spoke out against the portfolio given to um, the vice president of the United States, because one of the things in there was immigration reform. And I was like, the White House is just fucking with Kamala because there's no way that this is going to pass or you can be successful with that in your portfolio. Maybe I got that wrong, but it doesn't look like it. Um, what needs yeah. to happen if we get to Democratic majorities? Because I don't think Republicans have uh, an incentive to actually resolve our immigration issues because it's such a potent political weapon for them. I, I definitely agree on that. I mean, I don't think Democrat, it's my understanding, at least, you know, I haven't done a lot of in the weeds congressional reporting on where negotiations have been on this. So I don't want to speak out of turn. But my my understanding is that 
Democrats can't even really agree on what to do. And there's been, you know, sort of piecemeal efforts to, you know, to extend DACA protections or, um, you know, reduce some of the barriers that face undocumented people. But in terms of comprehensive immigration reform, we've been really far away from that for a long time. And I think it's part of the part of the reason for that is because it's become such a sort of political lightning rod that the GOP has, again, beat Democrats on messaging about, right? So A would be figure out a cohesive message and then figure out, you know, how to, to put it in practice. But again, it just seems like that's not a high priority right now, given all the other problems that all the other like domestic, you know, socioeconomic problems that we're facing, right? <laughs> yeah. Not well, I, I told you. Change. <laughs> <laughs> I told you guys, you guys are going to learn something today. How can people follow you on social media and keep up with your reporting? Uh, my handle is Akela A K E L A underscore Lacy L A C Y, and you can find my work and the work of my colleagues at theintercept.com. Uh, thank you so much, Akela. It's a beautiful name for joining thank the Bukari Sellers podcast. Yeah, thank, thank you, you for having me. This is great.